That was sweet. I, that was the first time I saw that. I like to be surprised now because they're so good. And uh, that was awesome. So um, that's the benefit of being the 9 a.m. You just get the very first look at these things. And um, good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit. Thanks so much for being here. We are back in Exodus. If you don't remember kind of where we've been or if you're new and you're just jumping right in, let me give you a little bit of the context. Um, we're going to go through this quick. We've got 25 chapters left in Exodus, and we're going to finish the Sunday after Thanksgiving, so we're going we're gonna to move. We're going we're gonna to cook right through this thing. But um, where we left off, Exodus begins with the people of God, Israel, being enslaved in Egypt. And they're not only enslaved in Egypt, but they are victims of a systemic governmental genocide where they kill off the Hebrew baby boys, as well as they exploit uh, the adult uh, Israelites for slave labor. How is that for an exciting introduction? Right? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? And it's tremendously awful and tremendously sad, but God is not ambivalent towards the wickedness of Egypt, but instead seeing the radical disparity between the way things are and the way things are meant to be, God draws near and through a series of plagues passes judgment uh, righteously on Egypt that culminates and climaxes with the deliverance of his people out of Egypt where they have now uh, entered into the wilderness and now are wrestling with the question of like, where in the heck do we go from here? <laughs> like, what is it that we do from here now? And I think, um, you know, what they've been through is a tremendously traumatic situation. And if you've been through uh, kind of anything that's traumatic your entire life, and when I just even use that word trauma, I mean it robustly. I mean, um, for some of you, you can instantly say, hey, I experienced this. I had this happen to me. I was on the other side of a relationship that was tremendously unhealthy. Um, or some of you have been through traumatic situations. You might not classify it that way, but I'm just saying like, you know, you've been through things. You've had these experiences where a 15-minute encounter has forever shaped what your life looks like for the worst to today. I'm saying that there's these experiences that happen to us that are so hurtful and harmful in our past. It's hard for us to see ourselves kind of through any other lens than a victim of these things. Or even, you know, it's kind of interesting, like for us as a culture, we love even starting to sort of even change what we call people based on the trauma they've experienced in the past. So it's like, you know, it's like if you're divorced, you're not just divorced, you are a divorcee. Uh, it's like, man, I would like love if that was not like what I was known as anywhere I was introduced. Um, you know, it's it's difficult. It's it's really really hard. And um, you know, I think if you've been through a traumatic situation, there's two really big questions you have to wrestle through. The first is like, how in the world do I heal from what it is that happened to me? How, how do I like get over this? The second question is like, how do I move forward? Uh, how am I something more than a victim? Um, you know, and in this, it's like we want to dance in the tension that if you've been through something really difficult, and again, I've said this a lot, one of the things that I love about pastoring in an urban church is there's a lot, you know, it, it tends to be in urban churches, there's more kind of felt brokenness per square inch than other places. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to pastor uh, kind of where the need for God's grace is felt at its greatest. So what we're not trying to dismiss is like, hey, what happened to you isn't that big of a deal, just get over it. But even if you've been through the worst of circumstances, you know there's something intrinsically dehumanizing and um, disempowering about kind of saying, hey, what happened to you? That's going to be who you are for the rest of your life. You're always going to be a victim. You're never going to be able to move forward. You're always going to have a live a life in reaction to what's happened to you. That, that's not really an affirming thing. That's a tremendously discouraging and hopeless thing for people to say over you. So it's like, how do we embrace this tension where on one hand, we fully embrace and affirm the pain that you've experienced. On the other hand, say, okay, what is a healthy way forward? And one of the things I love about this remainder of Exodus is God really embraces that tension. And on one hand, never downplays 
the difficulty of what it is that Israel went through in Egypt. In fact, he's, he's perpetually like upplaying it. He's perpetually saying, and this was terrible and this was awful, but never forget the magnitude of who I am, that I was with you and I delivered you and I sustained you and I protected you so that... I might be able to do abundantly more through you than you could ever ask or imagine. I think actually one of the best pieces of news already that you should see in the book of Exodus is he's not like, hey man, you guys went through such a difficult time, just take the rest of your life off. <laughs> like actually, you know what he says is I'm gonna transform you. I'm not just passionate about healing the brokenness that was around you. I'm, healing about, I'm passionate about healing the brokenness that's inside of you as well. And I'm gonna transform you as a people into a nation. Although marginalized and small and through the worst of the worst, the greater nations to the very ends of the earth might look at the way that you conduct yourselves as a people and they might know and worship me. Isn't that crazy? Like, if you've been through something really, really hard, God isn't through you. He actually wants to transform you to use you to bring more glory to himself through your story. And that's incredibly good news uh, as a pastor of a church of people who, um, man, it just seems like hard things are our stories, our collective, collective stories. Now, how is God going to do this? Uh, God is going to do this through taking his people into the wilderness, which we're already, if you're paying attention, you're kind of like, you know, like, like that's not an exciting concept. If I was like, how are you doing? And you were like, man, I just feel like I'm in the wilderness. That, that doesn't mean you're doing good, right? And, and like, even in Denver, we love the outdoors, but we don't love like extended periods of time in the wilderness. You might like a weekend in the wilderness camping, but you wouldn't love like 40 years in the wilderness like uh, Israel is about to experience. You weren't a pro like generations in the wilderness, but it's interesting, from a biblical standpoint, we'll start to see this develop uh, this morning in Exodus 15 through 17. Really, the wilderness is a complex place. On one hand, it is a place of wrestling with God and struggle and difficulty and, and hopelessness sometimes. On the other hand, um, the wilderness throughout the entirety of the scriptures is a place of unparalleled uh, provision from God, protection from God, transformation from God. In fact, uh, the British pastor, Charles Spurgeon, he said this, he said, um, I love this quote. He says, actually it's the wilderness that is the Oxford and the Cambridge for God's students. A university where we grow and mature into the people we were meant to be. And so um, we're gonna see that and we'll jump right into it. And um, we're gonna see kind of two major points here. We'll see God's uh, provision in the wilderness and then we'll see how this all points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the gospel. Now, um, let's start with God's provision in the wilderness. Really, the major thing that unfolds from Exodus 15 through 17 is that we all come to places in our lives where we feel the need for provision. Uh, we feel the need for something to happen if we're going to make it, and um, that God is the one to satisfy that need. But really, the point of Exodus 15 through 17 is the Lord is a provider. Now, I want to set a little bit of context, again, to kind of you know, we've taken a break from this. So I want to take you back to Exodus 12. So you can either turn there or it'll be up on the screen uh, as well. Exodus 12 verses 37 through 39. There are two really important pieces of information you need to have in your mind as we study then chapters 15 <clears throat> through 17 together. And I'll walk through this from Exodus 12. Verse 37 says this, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So here's the first important piece of information is contextually what's happening in the wilderness is there are a lot of people there. Uh, the text tells us in Exodus 12 that there's 600,000 men. That's about the number of people that live in Denver County as a whole. And then 
On top of that are women and children. And people had a lot of children back then. So think a ton of kids. I know we have a lot of babies around here. That ain't nothing on what was going on there, okay? So a lot of people, a lot of people are out there in the wilderness. Not only that, but secondly, it's a lot of people who are poorly prepared to go into the wilderness for an extended period of time. Look at this in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had... uh, that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. It was not leavened because, here it is, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So a lot of people, a lot of poorly prepared people to be out in the wilderness for an extended period of time. You have to remember, again, they had been dwelling, I think it was 430 years, the entirety of them waiting for their deliverance out of Egypt, then all of a sudden it's like they get like a mass text message, right? It's like one of those Amber Alerts go out and everybody's phone's like, boing, boing, boing. It's like everybody in Israel gets this text from God saying, get out. Like, I know you've been waiting over 400 years. Your deliverance has come tonight. Get out, get out of here, get out of here right now. You know, I think about this, you know, it's like you've got all the flooding that just happened um, in Texas. You've got all the flooding that's now happening in Florida. Uh, We feel like all of my wife's family, pretty much lives down there still. They actually refuse to evacuate because they don't think hurricanes are that big of a deal. So we'll see how it goes, hopefully well. Um, but we've been like thinking about, I've been like thinking a lot about them even today because it's like, I think it's now just making landfall in Miami. Um, and like, I don't know, you read these stories about people who spent their whole lives in a single home. They have like all their stuff and they thought they were gonna be totally fine. And then all of a sudden like the floodwaters are rising and it's like, we've got like 45 minutes to get stuff together and get out of here. Like, what would you even take with you? Like, what would you get? You know, we were talking about this even in our staff meeting on Wednesday, and we had to take like a 15-minute break from going through the sermon because everybody was like so floored by the weight of that question. Like, what would I take? What would I get? Like, what of my children's blankets do I have to get so that like in the wilderness things are okay? You know, on top of food and water and all that other stuff as well. But try to to some degree feel the weight of, man, like, there's a lot of panic. And they're wrestling through a question of like, how are we going to make it? I mean, when you start to think about it from this particular lens, you start to understand this is a question we ask all the time. Some of us, we ask it literally in the same way that Israel is asking this question. You look at your bank account, you look at your job situation, you look at your food situation, and it's like, I don't know how I'm going to financially make ends meet. I'm not sure how like food and just basic provisions of surviving, I'm going to make it. Um, others of us, you know, we're okay at least somewhat in that department, but maybe we ask this question in another way. Maybe we ask it relationally, where it's like, I feel alone, and I don't feel like I really have close friends. I feel like in the city I'm surrounded by a bunch of people, but I don't really know people. Am I going to feel alone for the rest of my life? Some of you are single, and you don't want to be single, and you want to be married. You want to be married more than anything else. Family's putting crazy pressure on you for to get, you to get married, and it's like, is this what the rest of my life is going to be? Am I, am I doomed to a less than full human experience because I don't have a spouse like my grandparents keep making me feel like? So Israel is wrestling through a question that we all wrestle through. We look at what we need. We look at how we don't have it. We look at our inability to sort of meet that need. And it's like, is God going to show up? Is he going to show up and is he going to provide? Now, <clears throat> As Israel works through this question, what we're going to learn or kind of we're going to walk through this point in three subpoints. So the first, as we walk through 15 through 17, is we're going to learn something about ourselves. Then we're going to learn something about God. 
And then we're going to see kind of one big action step in terms of how we navigate this question. We all ask on a daily, if not daily, uh, hourly basis of is God going to show up and is he going to provide? Now, what is it that we first and foremost learn about ourselves? We're going to learn about our tendency to forget, our tendency to forget. Now, we're going to work through this. We're going to see the three complaints of, of Israel here. Okay, I'm going to walk you through each of these. So we'll start in 1522. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Now, here's the problem, right? They need water. Um, and they get put in this weird place that compounds the anxiety where it's like they're surrounded by water, but the water's no good. So think being stranded at sea, there's plenty of water, right? But you can't drink the water. Or some of you have traveled to countries where it's like you might get really thirsty, but the drinking water isn't safe, right? That, that's almost worse. It's almost like, I wish that wasn't even an option. Um, you know, and uh, they're wrestling through the same thing. The water is bitter. Now look at verse 24. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it in the water and the water became sweet. All right, that's the first complaint. They're complaining about their lack of water. Now let's look at 16.1 where they start complaining about a lack of food. They set out from Elam and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And look at how this escalates. The people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now it escalates, right? There's something about hunger that makes us like irrationally crazy. I think about this like when I go to Ikea and I see almost marriages dissolve before my very eyes because people like from a hungry posture are debating about like what couch we're going to get. That's, it's going to break down in 18 months anyways, right? Like that's, it's like my whole house is Ikea furniture. So I ain't judging. I'm just saying experientially, like don't get too emotionally invested in it. And it's crazy, right? You see this, um, this marriage that's about to like dissolve before your very eyes just because they're hungry. And then they make it to the cafeteria and I see them a half hour later and they've got like a belly full of meatballs and pudding and it's like they're newlyweds, right? It's like this transformative, hey, even this morning, um, I don't know if I'll say this all day, but I'll at least share it because I'm still overcoming the anger from this. Um, you know, I was getting ready in my basement to teach and my wife very graciously gets up and makes me a breakfast so I can be preaching on a full stomach. I come up to get the breakfast about 10 minutes before I'm getting ready to drive down here and the plate is clean. And it's like, did my children do this? Did my wife do this? And there's my dog in the corner, just guilty as can be. Like, I'm like, what did you do? You know, what did he, he knows what he did. And uh, it was just like, it was just, I mean, the morning was almost, I almost just didn't come. I was just like, you know what? This is, this is too much for me to overcome. But there's, there's something about hunger, right? Where we just like, we go to a crazy place. And this is seen so clearly in Israel here where it's, it's crazy the accusation they're bringing towards God. Like think about, I mean, let me just draw your attention to this again um, in verse uh, three. With it, we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. It's like they're longing for the, they're like, here, here's kind of the rationalization. Man, I know the genocide wasn't ideal, right? I know, I know the genocide wasn't great. I know the whole slavery thing wasn't great. But the meat, the breadsticks, they were fantastic. That we could be back in Egypt. Oh, oh, it would be so, it would be so great. This is kind of the rationalization, you know, where you like break up with somebody who's like crazy unhealthy for you, and then you get like two weeks removed, and you're like, it wasn't that bad. 
she wasn't that violent. He wasn't that mean. And we like talk ourselves back into returning into terrible situations. We're seeing the essence of sin here. We've said this throughout Exodus, that sin is more than making bad decisions. It's insane thinking where we'll talk ourselves into that something's very harmful for us is actually very good for us. It's like the most backward, it's like crazy their rationalization. They're like, it was so good. It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, you wanna be away from the genocide slavery situation. I know that's crazy. I know that's revolutionary. You wanna be away from that. The third complaint, look at 17.1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So again, water, then food, now water again. It escalates to an even different, a, a higher place. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, look at this, look at how explicit this is. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So a very direct accusation then of God there. You brought us out here to kill us. Verse four, Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me, which is probably something that any leader who's led anybody to any period, like, what have you done, God? Why have you cursed me? You know, I've never felt that, but I've heard people have felt that before. Uh, But you look at this at the end of verse three, you brought us out here to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. Now, what do we learn by kind of three complaints that are basically the same uh, at their very essence. We're seeing not just Israel's propensity to forget, but the collective human propensity to forget God's past grace. You know, it's crazy to me, right? Because what happens in the first half of chapter 15 is like they are literally, as a people, so pumped about God's deliverance, they like spontaneously make up a song about it. And it's like they're still humming it, right? They're like marching together and they're like, you know, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. I love that song. That's a great song. Why have you brought us out here to kill us? It's, and it's like super easy for us then to be like, yeah, idiots. But like, that's us, right? Like, we're going we're gonna to dive deeper into this. But think in your own life for a second how easy it is, even, even as victims of trauma to some degree, to look back at our past and see these unbelievable expressions of God's past grace. Where it's like, I could probably pass the microphone around and and you could stand up and you would tell stories of God moving in your life that would move us to tears. And yet, even though probably most of us in this room would instantly be able to give examples of that, today, there's a situation that's gonna make us feel anxious and the place we're mentally gonna go immediately is God is not gonna show any grace. He's not gonna step in and move. I'm on my own. The only reasonable thing to believe is gonna happen is the worst case scenario. Well, we're gonna dive in more into that, but like, can we just pause for a second and be like, that's crazy thought, right? That, that's crazy thinking. Like, isn't it weird that God has proven himself again and again and again and again in the past And we don't in any way let that shape or be the lens through which we interpret our future. Now, I want you to see the way God responds to this. Here's what we learn about God. So we learn about ourselves, our propensity to forget. What do we learn about God? We learn that God's past faithfulness is his promise of future provision. That God's past faithfulness is his promise of future provision. Now, look at the way that God responds to uh, each of these three complaints. We'll start in chapter 15, again, 1526. 
Now, there's going to be a repetition of a theme. I'm going to try to draw your attention to it. If you're taking notes, I would write it down. I would circle this in your Bible. If you use one of our Bibles, circle it and then take that Bible home. 1526. If you will diligently listen to the Lord, uh, to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Look at this. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. All right, that's one. 16, four through seven, the complaint about the hunger. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Look at verse six. Okay, this is the key verse here. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? All right, now the complaint about thirst in chapter 17. The Lord, this is verse five, said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. And look at this, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, it's 17.7. That's a really relevant question because I think it's the question that any of us ask in times where we feel that need for provision and we feel our inability to meet that need for provision. We ask that question, whether audibly or subconsciously, is the Lord among me uh, or is he not? And it's interesting then the way that God through kind of the portion of scripture that we just read chooses to answer that question. 1526, would you remember the plagues of righteous judgment that I pass on the Egyptians? 16.6, would you remember that I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt? 17.5, would you look at the staff that is a symbol of my judgment and deliverance on your behalf. God is saying the same thing in a diversity of ways. Would you let my past faithfulness, the faithfulness you were just saying about, the faithfulness you saw with your own eyes, would you let that past faithfulness be the lens through which you interpret your present and your future? And would you see that my past faithfulness is my promise of my future provision? Would you in any way interpret our relationship through the lens of like, how have I treated you in the past? And will the grace that is overflown towards you be the lens through which you interpret how I will treat you in the future? I mean, this is not that spiritual of a thing that God's even asking. Like this is not like, okay, some of you are here and it's the fall and you're trying to figure out maybe this is a new kind of rhythm in the life of Denver. So you're back at church or your church for the very first time. And even if this is the first time you've ever opened a Bible in your entire life, what God is asking of us is something we do all the time, kind of, it's like inescapable. Think about this. Think about the degree to which we interpret kind of a future relationship with somebody uh, based on kind of the way they've treated us on the past. So for example, on uh, Wednesday, I had a lunch meeting with somebody in the life of our church. And I was thinking about this. I sh- the, the lunch meeting was at noon. I showed up at like 11.58 and he wasn't there. And then it was like 12.05 and he wasn't there. Now, instantly, all of us have had that experience where it's like, 
what the heck is going to happen here, right? Am I going to be dining alone or not? And we immediately go to a place where we think about who is that person? How has that person treated me in the past? And then that kind of impacts what I think is going to happen in the future as well. And so if this person for me uh, was somebody who was a flaky person, a non-dependable person, if this was the type of person who like bails on me via text message within 30 seconds, like five minutes after we were supposed to meet, who's the type of person that like when you text, hey, where are you? They don't respond, but yet they're like updating social media profiles. So it's like, I know you have your phone on you. Like, why aren't you responding to me? Like Instagram has to be done from your phone. I know then you're getting my text message what's going on, I mean, you're immediately going to a place saying like, okay, I might as well order because I'm going to be eating alone. But if this person is faithful and in this particular situation, it was one of our other pastors, like one of the most faithful, dependable, like I'm just saying like one of the most faithful, dependable uh, people that I've known for an extended period of time. It didn't worry me at all. I was like, man, I'm thankful for the five minute breather in my day. I'll know he'll be here. I don't even need a text to make sure that he like remembered, like he'll be here. I'm, I'm not worried about whether or not he's going to show up. And it's that thinking that we apply to everybody all the time that like God is saying to Israel, would you apply that thinking to me? And would you let the past faithfulness, the immeasurable ways that I've shown, I've overflowed, I've poured out my grace to you again and again and again, all the stories of provision, the stories of provision that you're singing about, that you're still humming the tune of, would you let the way that I treated you in the past be the lens through which you interpret the way I'm gonna treat you in the present and the future as well? But we don't act that way. I, I, I don't know why. I mean, I do know why, because like we're sinful and we freak out. And it's like, but it's like God is asking something tremendously uh, rational from us and from his people as well. Now this leads then to uh, one big action step that I want to challenge you with from this. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound a little weird, and then I'm going to clean it up. But I, I, I just, I felt like the language is appropriate here. So the one big action step in light of who we are in the midst of these situations, in light of who God is in the midst of these situations, is that we would uh, prophesy a future where God provides. That we would prophesy a future where uh, God provides. Now, um, let me clean this up because when you, I think when you hear the word prophecy, you either have very weird connotations or that's kind of it, you know? Um, uh, you know, probably for some of you, you've seen it, maybe done it. So anyways, I'm borrowing this concept from a, a book um, by a guy named Ed Welch. He's a counselor and an author. Uh, one of our other pastors actually brought it to uh, my attention. Um, but he, he wrote a book called Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest. And he talked about, in his counseling experience, the degree to which... Um, people have this innate desire and uh, tendency to prophesy the future. That is, we, regardless of our religious beliefs, tend to look at situations that haven't yet unfolded to look into the future and say, this is what's gonna happen. This is what's gonna unfold. I mean, that's, that's prophecy in some ways. Now, what Welch said is in his counseling experience, and I feel the same way doing counseling as well, as well as I just kind of, was really processing this in my own life, is that not only do we tend to prophesy the future, but we tend to uh, exclusively prophesy worst-case scenarios. Um, And not only, like, is that going to happen, but it is going to (laughs) happen. So you are the person who's anxious about making ends meet, and you're like, man, money's tight, and um, not only will money be tight, but money will be tight for the rest of my life, and not only that, but the bottom's going to drop out, And I just don't really envision a future other than like, I'm alone, scared, homeless. I can't really see anything other than that in the future for me. 
Uh, or there's relational tensions, right? Like, you know, somebody treats you a little bit coldly. Somebody puts something kind of vague on social media, like, is that about me? Is that not about me? Um, and you start this internal conversation where you're like, okay, I'm going to ask them if that was about me. They're going to say yes. I'm going to get my feelings hurt. Then they're going to say this. It's going to be really insensitive. And then things are going to escalate terribly. And then we're never going to be friends again for the rest of our lives. It's like we'll have entire conversations that didn't happen in reality. And we'll almost let it treat us like it actually is reality. Now, Welch makes a really interesting observation. I want to read you this quote. Here's what he said in response to not only our propensity to prophesy the future, but prophesy almost exclusively worst-case scenarios. He says, when you understand God's plan to give future grace, you have access to what is arguably God's most potent weapon against worry and fear. There's one bit of data that warriors never factor into their false prophecies. It is this. We will receive grace in the future. It's like, what if you looked at your present or future anxieties and instead of, maybe this, first, would you develop some self-awareness to say, I have an entire conversation about how terrible things are gonna be even though I don't ever audibly talk. Like you should just develop self-awareness. I do that. Like I've just tried to grow in that in my own life of like, I just had an entire conversation and I didn't say anything and it's even going to, it's gonna impact the way I function in reality. Maybe that makes me seem crazy, but I feel like there's at least a few other people that are like, man, I'm weird right there with you, bro. Um, so we'll just be weird together. Would you develop the self-awareness to say, I'm having this conversation that's really impacting the way that I'm going to handle my reality. Secondly, what if you actually started to prophesy a future where God shows up? What if you started envisioning a future? And I'm not saying like take it to the extreme of prosperity, theology, name it. I'm just saying like, what if the God of the gospel, I don't know, like he's not going to cut off his grace to you in the future. Well, it's like there's so many situations that so many of you are so anxious about right now. And, and so much of what's compounding that anxiety is you assume you're all alone and it's only going to be the worst case scenario. What if you envision a future where God shows up? That his past grace is his promise of future provision. His past faithfulness is his promise of future provision. His past love and kindness expressed to you is his promise of future provision. And I feel like one of the reasons I love this passage so much um, is like all of the Bible is true and profitable. There's some parts of the Bible that just hit you deeper than other parts. And actually, when I was um, nine months into helping start this church, this was about six years ago, uh, a good friend of mine really strongly rebuked me with Exodus 15 through 17. Um, We worked together uh, back in North Carolina before uh, we moved out here. And I was on the phone with him and he would like call and check in on me uh, every once in a while. And um, for like 10 minutes, I just talked about how hard things were and how um, kind of hopeless I felt in a lot of ways. And I just kind of went on and on and about kind of this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen and all these different worst case scenarios. And after sort of just verbally vomiting on the phone for about 10 minutes, um, I finally at the end of it was like, I, I don't know, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? And there was this long pause. And he said to me, 
man, I don't know, it just, it just sounds like you think God called you out to Denver to kill you. And then he paused long again. I don't know, like, I've seen God's amazing grace in your life, and I don't, I don't understand why you assume it's not going to continue into the future. Like, that doesn't seem very rational to me. You seem a lot like Israel in the wilderness. It's like, you sound a lot like Israel in the wilderness. Like, don't you judge me. It was like, man, it was like so, it was like so challenging to me. I've, I've replayed that conversation in my head a thousand times. Like, man, it was so God's kindness to... And I'm not saying like I never struggle with it anymore, but I'm just saying like, I just again and again and again go back to like when Daniel was like, you think God's gonna kill you? And it's like, what if we let the past faithfulness of God shape our interpretation of the future? Now in all this, this is very incomplete, um, as helpful as I hope it's been up to this point, because all of this is pointing to the better and truer provision of the God of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We've said this repeatedly that really the Exodus story cannot be seen in its climax and clarity apart from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And all of these are like stories, all these stories throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, they're like, they're like signposts that are beautiful in themselves, but they're pointing you, uh, almost like taking you up to a mountain where you see the beautiful view of God's work in the gospel. And what's so beautiful is that when you read the New Testament, particularly the life of Jesus, uh, and people talk about the life of Jesus, it's Exodus 15 through 17, and this experience of the people of God dwelling in the wilderness, asking if God is gonna provide, asking if he's gonna give food and water, that they're just going back to again and again and again to, to kind of connect all of this to the person in the work of Jesus. In fact, Jesus kicks off his ministry uh, <laughs> with this in uh, Matthew 4. Jesus is driven out into the wilderness for 40 days. It is meant to correspond to the 40 years of Israel dwelling in the wilderness. And not only does he dwell in the wilderness, but he passes the test in the wilderness in the way that Israel and any of us have failed as well so that he might be perfectly and fully righteous and be able to atone in our place for our sins. You fast forward in his life to Mark chapter 6 where Jesus miraculously multiplies fishes and loaves for thousands of hungry people who are again stranded in the wilderness. What is the point of that story? The point of that story is that on one hand, the same God who dwelled in the Exodus and provided for his people in the wilderness is now dwelling amongst them as well, as well as the true and better provision has arrived because in the, in the Exodus, there was no overflow, there was no abundance, there was no leftovers. But in the New Testament, they're gathering up leftovers like crazy. They're like, who wants more bread? And they're like, we're stuffed, no more bread whatsoever. This fast forwards then into when Jesus even will refer to himself as the eternal bread of life who will satisfy us not only in the temporary but for all eternity. He says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again, which is why then at the end of his ministry, Jesus will gather his friends and followers for a final meal before he is betrayed and crucified to atone for our sins. And he refers to the bread being himself. Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke and after gave it to his disciples 
said, take, eat, this is my body in Matthew 26, 26. And then even in Exodus 17, 5, where we see the rock is struck and provides waters for the salvation of the people so they might live another day. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, looks back on this story and actually, you know what he very explicitly and beautifully and brilliantly says? He says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Because even this was pointing to the finished work of Jesus where he would be struck and from him would flow from his wounds the blood that atones for our salvation. All of this then, as we think about this and apply this in our life, reaches its ultimate climax and clarity and applicability in what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 when he says... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he not also with him graciously give us all things. It's like, here's the point. It's like, if I just say, hey, God's gonna provide, a lot of you can come back with me as stories of where you feel like God hasn't provided. That's why I even started the story kind of acknowledging trauma because it's easy for you to look at your past and for you to be like, man, I understand maybe God's provided for other people but not for me or this is what happened to me or this is where... And it's like, look, we're not dismissing what's happened to you. We would never downplay the seriousness of what you've been on the other end of. Is it a rational thing to say that the world is a frightening place? Of course. Like, people are overwhelmed more than any time in the last decade or so about just how broken the world really is. But this is where this is like something more than just like God's gonna provide. The point of the Exodus story is God has provided. Every single one of you, regardless of circumstance, regardless of trauma, regardless, God has provided the ultimate provision in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, where God has looked at your greatest need, your sinfulness against him that would have eternally, horribly consequences in nature, a problem that you have no ability to fix whatsoever. And God proves himself as the true, better, ultimate, faithful provider and that he sends his son in your place to die for your sins so that your greatest need might be met. That happened in all of your past. I pray that God by the power of the Spirit would propel your heart to believe it so that you might accept this, even maybe for some of you for the very first time, today in the present. And that that, the gospel faithfulness of God in Christ would be the lens through which you interpret your future. And anxiety would subside, fear would subside, uh, worst case scenario prophesying would subside. And say, I know who the God who's provided for me That's the God who's over me right now, and that's the God who goes before me into the future. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for this um, beautifully uh, applicable section of Scripture. It's easy for us, I think, to echo what Ruth said on the front end. It's it's easy for us and to feel um, like these people are just dumb. Um this is us. <laughs> and, uh, and even the health that spills into our lives with a little bit of humility where we acknowledge um, we are dumb. Uh, we might have degrees, we might be educated, we might have good jobs, we might know a lot about certain stuff, but man, at the areas of life that actually matter the most, 
it's crazy how ignorance abounds. And so God, let that not lead us to despair, but instead of confidence in your grace, um, that you are a doctor who comes to heal those who can finally come to a place they confess they're broken. And so God, let us confess our weakness in this area of our life. Let us believe that you, by the power of your spirit, will indwell us and change us and transform us. And God, I do pray, I, I really do pray that for every man and woman in this room, that even as we go out from today, and even though there's many good reasons to believe otherwise, we would let your past faithfulness seen most explicitly in the gospel shape the way we will interpret our future. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond in a few ways. Who's, did I take your music stand? All right. Thanks for sharing. Um, <clears throat> we're respond in three ways as we do weekly. The first will be that uh, we will sing. Uh, you know, it, it's funny that, like, there's such a propensity for them to forget right after singing at the first half of Exodus chapter 15. And it's probably just a reflection of the degree to which we need the regular rhythm of song in our lives to proclaim holistically as a family uh, the truths of who God is and the, the amazing uh, magnitude of salvation he's extended to us. So we'll sing. Uh, we'll pray. There'll be men and women in the back corners of this room that love to pray with you. So if you want to receive prayer, if you want to ask me what it means to believe and follow Jesus for the very first time, um, if you have something we just didn't talk about, and I know we've talked about hard stuff, but if we come forward, you can go back and receive prayer. We'd love to pray with you. And then we will uh, celebrate communion as we do weekly. The bread has been broken. The cup has been poured out. Uh, hopefully you already, without a whole lot of explanation, see the connection and significance to this. Uh, all the way back to Exodus 15 through 17. Like this is where Exodus 15 through 17 was leading. That we as the people of God who often feel like we're dwelling in the wilderness and wondering like, is God gonna provide? He does, he provides the bread of life and the person and the work of Jesus. That's why he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. This is my blood that's been poured out for you. It's like we are the people in the wilderness needing the bread of God to rain down from heaven and it has. And a person and a work of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, when we become a follower of Jesus, this is for you to feast, to celebrate, to take upon, to see you surrounded by men and women who have the same struggle you do as well with all this um, and to proclaim, this is the past grace of what God has done for me. This is how I'm gonna interpret my future as well. So let's respond.